The football pod on OTB Sports. I think they'll have too much. I didn't hear a word you said in the last 45 seconds. What? Breaking news here on the football pod. The football pod is available every Tuesday exclusively on the OTB Sports app. Wednesday Night Rugby on Off The Ball with Vodafone main sponsor of the Irish rugby team we all belong to the team of us now you're welcome along Wednesday Night Rugby so the two-legged Heineken Champions Cup round of 16 format I think generally deemed a success lots of very close run affairs one of the few duds in that respect was Leinster being too good for Connacht double scores in the end 82 points to 41 on aggregate Leinster away to Leicester in the quarterfinals Munster meanwhile came good at home to Exeter they will face Toulouse in the next round who themselves beat Ulster in Belfast so we have two provinces into the quarterfinals meanwhile the TikTok Women's Six Nations returns this weekend notably at Welford Road England against Ireland is Sunday at midday and the EPCR have announced dates for the European quarterfinals so Saturday May the 7th is the day for the Irish provinces Munster Toulouse 3 o'clock kickoff at the Aviva Stadium on Saturday May the 7th and then 5.30 straight into it Welford Road Leicester against Leinster again on Saturday May the 7th very happy to say Andy Dunn has popped into studio great to have you with us thanks Joe and Jerry Thornley of the Irish Times you're there Jerry. how you doing? not too bad Joe how you doing? how you doing Andy? hi Jerry. So we might start with Thomond Park, Jerry. Munster 26, Exeter 10. They overturned a five-point deficit, an 11-point win on aggregate. Simon Zebo doesn't need the ball often to do something special, turns out. Well, it's just as well, isn't it? He's a bit of a luxury item in that left wing. He gets so little ball. It's been the story of the season. Keith Earls doesn't see much more or whoever else on the right wing either. And you compare and contrast that with Leinster's wingers and how often they get involved, whether it's Leinster getting the ball to the edge, but they do a lot more than Munster or bring their wingers in off their wings to, you know, for more work across the line, which obviously lends to a huge amount very effectively with James Lowe. But yeah, the ball reached him and then he's running towards the touchline. And I'm, it's on the far side of the pitch from the press box. Jota, where's he going? He's just going to get hammered into touch here. He can't make it around the outside. But of course, he knew exactly what to do. And that being said, I would safely say that the vast majority of the 20,000 plus in the stadium didn't fully appreciate the wondrous, the wondrousness of that offload inside to Damien Day and they until it was shown again in slow motion from a couple of angles and then you could hear the oohs and the ahs. It was an extraordinary moment, moment of high skill. Yes, I think I was second replay, Andy, before I fully appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, possibly third in my <laughs> case. Um, I had the exact same sense of it uh, as Jerry. I felt he's gone up Muggs Alley, as they used to call it. He's going to get three-man collared into touch and uh, just so always refreshing to see little moments yeah. of great skill um, I I think there there's a real worry around his lack of um, possession and same uh, similarly on the other side on Keith Earls that that translates it's a deeper issue with Munster that's ongoing is what is you can't you can't really clearly identify what is their style of play it's a it's a mix and match of many different styles um, the away game in Exeter probably really showed that you know with with uh, Healy playing at 10 who's a massive boot they've completely underutilised it they ran from deep from everywhere um, and they did that they didn't execute that well in the away leg it was it seemed quite out of character for them so they, they've Zebo at home and they've Carberry playing at 10 and they don't use them uh, when you'd expect those two players to, to utilise the ball much more so they're a little they're a little caught in the middle in terms of their style of play but they're in the semis 
They sure are. And, and Jerry, despite any of those concerns, uh, there's a, a sense of optimism around this performance at Dominic Park. And the crowd were very into the game. And it was uh, certainly talked about as a better brand of rugby in, in certain quarters. What was your read on the performance? Yeah, I thought it was good. I thought it was a good way to win it with that try. And as a result of playing, the, I think it was about their third sustained multi-phase attack in the second half. And you felt it was coming. I thought there was a better shape to their attack than there had been through the phases. Even for Joey Carberry's try, I think there were seven phases coming in off a line-out. It wasn't just all pick and jams, one-off runners. And then when Peter Armani had to step in at scrum half, he throws that old-school left-to-right dive pass for Joey Carberry to pick his moment and score brilliant. And it was great to see Carberry back to his best, you know, playing with that swagger that you just innately always used to associate with Joey Carberry. And as well as everything, I suppose, it was the goal kicking. Like his goal kicking was world class. His goal kicking is now right up there almost with Johnny Sexton's, possibly the second best in Ireland. And he, to nail six out of six, I don't know if you could possibly appreciate how difficult that would have been off a TV set, particularly the f- three first half ones into the wind. When he was asked to take on the first one for about 35 metres, he actually said, Peter, man, are you sure you want me to do this? Because they hadn't been going that well in the warm up. So to get six out of six, including one from the touchline in the second half, was essentially the difference. It's been a very interesting dynamic watching these two legs unfold. Um, don't know whether you agree with me, lads, but like, I'm not sure extra appreciated that it was cup rugby. I think I counted on at least 10 occasions where they turned down three shots at goal and went to the corner. Now, that yielded a couple of tries for sure, two at least anyway. Whereas Munster uh, took a shot, took a three points in the first leg and took the five, four penalty goals at, at the post in the, in the second leg and landed them all. And when you think that Exeter outscored Munster by, you know, but by one try, I think it was four tries, three over the two games. The policy of going for goal and the accuracy off the tee, I think Joe Simmons missed all four conversions mm. as well as the penalty from the halfway line, was a hugely significant um, factor in Munster progressing to the quarterfinals. I think it was a little bit of, you know, they're, they've, Munster have always understood the ethos of cup rugby mm. going back, you know, since God knows when. And I think that kind of shone through a little bit as well, that they understood the value of taking three regularly, keep the scoreboard ticking over. It helped no end that they kept the deficit in the first leg down to five points. That was much more of an option for them. You think back to Conor Murray's try saving tackle and Joe Yandel and Keith Earls tracking across the pitch to tackle Ollie Woodburn. If either of those had been a score and a two-score lead, I think it might have been a hugely different dynamic. They might have to go for the corner more often. But overall, I thought on balance, it was a good performance. A lot of outstanding individual displays. Peter Armani, most obviously. Mm. Uh, Jack O'Donoghue, John, um, John Hodner, Joey Carby as well. And uh, the midfield was much improved, Davey Ende, particularly in defence, because they were getting outflanked in first phase attack a lot against Leinster and in the first half, and even the second half against Exeter. They largely resolved those issues and their defence through phases was excellent and they also won the breakdown, which probably was the difference. Yeah, in many respects, Jerry, as you say, they probably won this fixture at Sandy Park. Ultimately, I was listening to Donald Lennon earlier on the RTE podcast and he was saying that Exeter aren't what they used to be. If we're trying to find a context for this victory, the change to the latching law has undermined their real threat, their real modus operandi inside the 22. And they were missing three British and Irish lines in Luke Hound Dickey, Sam Simmons and Johnny Hill. And that's not to mention uh, Jack Nell supporting from the stands, which was in full hard monster, to believe. In full monster garb. <laughs> yeah. saw, oh, man. Was it a stag party or something? Yeah. Like that? Yeah. 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 So I don't know, was he the stag or not? But he lost some bet somewhere along the line. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> Jerry mentioned Peter O'Mahony and he had an exceptional game. And at the breakdown, 
Munster really did a number in Exeter and, and Sam Warburton made the point even during commentary in BT he was saying there is much less of an emphasis on breakdown steals in the Premiership there might be three or four steals on average across 80 minutes I think Munster might have had double that by the halftime whistle very very different attitudes to the breakdown amongst the provinces versus, versus the Premiership and Peter Omani doesn't need a second invitation amongst others was that your experience when you played in the Premiership is this a traditional Premiership view on the breakdown? Um my experience now is it's uh, sepia toned it's so long ago in the membership and the game has evolved you were a groundhog type <laughs> 10 memory, weren't you yeah yeah i don't believe i was in more than five rooks in a 10-year career so i'm possibly not best served to comment but i i do think in the premiership there as at times there's a um there's a sense that they they try and play and I don't I don't necessarily agree with it, but I do think there's a sense they try and play in a more progressive way and maybe play, paying attention to or putting a greater focus on being destructive at the breakdown. They'll trade off, they'll trade off and they say, well, are we going to be a progressive team or a destructive team? I think the likes of Quinns um, winning the Premiership, playing in such a kind of an expressive way and keeping the ball alive, people tend to look at success and try and emulate it and Quinns wouldn't have any attention to detail at the breakdown based on their last two seasons they they were a bit like you score 35 and we'll score 36 and if that becomes successful teams try and emulate it so I think there's a there's a lack of attention to detail to something as fundamental as being being destructive or pilfering at the breakdown and very hard to keep a focus on both sides of that when you're going from a different tournament from the Premiership into Europe. And I do, I, I fully agree with Jerry. I think very strange choices in a knockout game to, to not, you know, every single point counts. The aggregate idea is, is not, um, it's not that difficult to understand. They're all intelligent people. I couldn't fathom why they turned down kickable penalties. Um, so yeah, I mean, my experience at Premiership Rugby probably was, in some way, similar to what we we witnessed from Exeter is is a lack of attention to that negative side and that destructive side of the game, and they seemed a little naive over the course of of two legs. I think I would I I would mention though I I think Monsters, the individual brilliance that we saw on a number of occasions is something that I would love to see harnessed in a more cohesive way across the team. I mean, Keith Earls not having played in in a number of months, making a 70-yard um, dash in with two minutes to go in the away leg to save a certain try. Those type of moments are what ultimately wins you a two-leg fixture. O'Mahony was outstanding. Carberry knocking over kicks in really difficult conditions again. They're, they're all individual moments of brilliance that I'd like to see channeled into a more cohesive team approach at the moment. Not quite seeing that. There's a lot of unpredictability in terms of how they play, but a lot of excellence in individual performances. Mm. Well, they have a couple of tricky URC fixtures, or in particular Ulster in Belfast, and they have Cardiff at home, which should be very winnable. And then it will be May the 7th at the Aviva Stadium, of course, Jerry uh, Munster, I, I look. It's, this has raised eyebrows, but I think very quickly people have understood the financial imperatives at play here. So I haven't seen. Maybe I could be wrong here, but I haven't seen the uh, Munster 
hierarchy uh, being lashed out at here overly? Well, I haven't gone into great depth analyzing social media and you know the various um, message boards and so forth. I think there has been a fair bit of disquiet amongst Monster fans, Joe, okay. that probably are a bit angry that this was a commercial decision rather than a rugby decision. As not often, very often you get the chance to have a home quarter final. And the other thing as well is that the um, the EOR, EPC or dates with the weekends allotted for quarterfinals and semifinals and the rules about home quarterfinal and home semifinal advantage as well, don't forget, were all um, issued, I think, last June and the Ed Sheeran dates were confirmed in September. So they knew in advance the chance they were taking and I understand the marketing manager, Philip Nolan, said this was not a decision likely taken. They did have to make redundancies last year within the Munster branch. They did have to let players go and trim their staff. It's been a very difficult time for um, all the all the provinces, but Munster particularly have their financial difficulties. We all know that. They've needed an outside, outside benefactors in the 1014 group to help um, fund the signings of Orji Snyman and Damien de Allende. And I suppose if they hadn't made the quarterfinals and they turned down the chance to host two Ed Sheeran concerts at Thoman Park, they would have got hit with another stick. Um, so, like, like <clears throat> I was a bit angry when I because I came away from Saturday buzzing because even before kickoff, Joe, although there was six or 7,000 empty seats or spaces behind the goals, the, the best buzz I'd known at Thoman Park in quite some time, since pre-pandemic days for sure. And it was just great to see Munster play so well and the crowd stay fully engaged until the end. And it was just a bit like Munster of old and here they were in the quarterfinals. And then, of course, um, Antoine Dupont's 75th minute try and Thomas Ramos' conversion earns them hundreds of thousands of lucre in terms of getting them a home quarterfinal. Now, in a sense, financially, it's win-win in that they've got the Ed Sheeran concerts to take place at Thoman Park and they hopefully will try and fill out now the Aviva for the quarterfinal against Toulouse. The, the, what great slightly is that, you know, it definitely might have diminished their chances of winning. You would have thought Toulouse would be happier taking on Munster in the Aviva Stadium than they would be in Thoman Park, where they've lost two their two previous quarterfinals in Limerick in front of crowds. They won a last 16 tie there last season, but that was in an empty stadium, so there wasn't a Thoman Park factor per se. And then, of course, if it's Munster against Leinster in the semifinals, they would have had home venue advantage again in the semis, Joe, which means they could conceivably have played Leinster in the Thoman, in Thoman Park in the semis as well. But that being said, it's going to hopefully generate some good income for them, as well as, of course, the multi-million pounds income boon for the Limerick and, and the, the Limerick County and all around Limerick City as well. So there's a bigger picture of work here. I see what you're saying. And, you know, my initial anger has gradually ebbed over the, few, the days since that, yeah, it's a decision you can understand why they had to make. Well, Munster haven't denominate the Aviva Stadium to play Leinster. We'll stick in the craw for sure if that comes to fruition. You don't see what choice they have. They're not going to get a Gaelic ground at one, at one week's notice. Yeah. It was a unique um, circumstance, unique set of circumstances last year, I think, when they were making that call. I know they were aware of the dates and they were aware um, they were taking that gamble, but the level of financial strife that a lot of rugby clubs have gotten into uh, in the last couple of years there's a guaranteed payday on the edge here and day it's nine months in advance I don't I I think it's excusable I, I think it's understandable yeah. on the uh, sporting front I've heard it said well this won't be a huge disadvantage to Munster I think this is a massive massive disadvantage this is a several point swing I was at the Munster Saracens game a couple of years ago and it felt very much like a neutral venue. Big stadium, not nearly as hostile as Thomond. Players obviously not as comfortable as they would be in Thomond. I think uh, whatever chance you might have given Munster against Toulouse at Thomond Park, I would put it to you. Uh, Toulouse now raging favourites to win at the Aviva. I would agree. I think um, 
it's it's an unfortunate rebound of the choice they made, but they've yeah they they they've seeded home advantage, and with that they've they've seeded the the magic that is Thomond yeah. Park, a full and angry and crowd baying for blood Thomond Park, and I would imagine to lose our absolutely over the moon about going to the Aviva yeah. it's, it's an unfortunate reality of the situation I think Yeah, I think Tom and Park has worked at least 5 to 10 points yeah on that one Jerry. yeah it's hard to disagree like I pointed out earlier the, the two previous occasions Toulouse came to Tom and Park for quarterfinals which were in the in the modern redeveloped Tom and Park and were 26,000 27,000 full stadia they were well beaten on both occasions and I think you know they, they might have been a little bit more spooked as they were in those two days Granted, this is a much better Toulouse team who are the reigning champions or back at the summit of European and French rugby. But um, for those reasons as well, because they're, they're, I don't think Toulouse are quite right. You know what I mean? They're no. missing a few players. Julian Marchand's a huge loss for them. Even Dupont Entomac, that's a They've had a huge season. Those All those French players, what, eight, nine, ten of them involved in the Grand Slam, involved in the November Test when they beat the All Blacks. It's a big demand and it's not a, you know... It's, it's all well you can just keep going to every week on end and hope that you know you're going to find the magic yeah. so I do think they are beatable but I would agree with both of you that they would have been a little bit more beatable in Thoman Park Well you brought us nicely to Belfast so Ulster 23 to lose 30 points a one point win on aggregate and I, I think you're, you're absolutely Jerry. this is not vintage to lose they are uh, making mistakes DuPont I suspect has played a lot of rugby in the mm-hmm. absence of their French stars Toulouse wobbled very badly uh, during the Six Nations if you look at their results and now the, the the French players are back but it's still it's not quite flowing for them they're working very hard kicking hard under the water what was so incredible about the game at Belfast is that regardless of the fact that passes are not sticking and this is not as uh, joined up as they would like man do they uh, not for a moment not adhere to their principles and just keep throwing the thing around like with abandon you're watching them on Saturday night this game is in the melting pot and like I don't know maybe it's the Irish DNA you're thinking a bit more pragmatism here and you'll you'll be okay but geez, they just keep going for it and it's why they're box office it's why you have to watch them and ultimately it did pay dividend in the, in the end against Ulster who Jerry will feel they have left this behind them oh will they what it's going to be devastating for them as bad as that um, quarterfinal home defeat to Saracens was when was Jared Payne got sent off early on um, and they nearly w- even won that day with 14 men I think this is going to hurt even more the great thing about the two-legged format is you can't have an awful lot of excuses you've got 80 minutes at home you've got 80 minutes away and it's the same for all participating teams what I've got the first match in Toulouse and it was a belt of an occasion Joe like we think we've got great atmospheres of rugby matches in Ireland but that was 28,000 capacity well we don't actually I, 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 there was a Irish Times piece Andy I don't know if you read it about the Aviva Stadium <laughs> <laughs> oh I'd say your Twitter timeline was interesting for a few days um, but anyway it was even then coming away from that match you felt the fact that Toulouse came back from 13 points down to get a late try again through Entomac got them to within a score there's such a difference we talked about it with the Munster X game between taking a two-score lead to, to into the second leg and a one-score lead. As Dan McFarland said after the first leg, that can go in the blink of an eye against a team like Toulouse, particularly, even off-colour. And then they, I think they led by 10 points on aggregate in the second leg and they had so many chances and so many things went wrong for Ulster in that last quarter. I'd say it was a very difficult review for them. Um, there was obviously the Tom O'Toole red card, which is a huge turning point. I think Matthew Carley's refereeing, the, the penalty against James Hugh was critical when he briefly went off his feet and bounced back up to his feet because a Toulouse player pulled out of the way at the last second. It was a ridiculously harsh penalty and it gave Toulouse access into the Ulster 22, which led to Antoine Dupont's winning try against 14 men. 
And then, like, to compound it all, like, Marty Moore does a 62-minute shift, which is a pretty decent shift for a tight head, and he's replaced. Three minutes later, Tom O'Toole gets red-carded. Five minutes later, there's a scrum, so Marty has to trudge back on again but for the last 10 minutes. And then five minutes from time, he's out in the middle of the pitch, and who's moved to out half from scrum half but the world player of the year to skin him on the outside? I mean, when your luck's out, your luck's out. And, uh, yeah, be, there'll be so many moments. I'm even thinking back to one little moment in the first leg when... Um, when James Hume combined with Stuart McCluskey, he made his clean break, and he had John Cooney on his outside and Robert Balakoon on his uh, on his outside, Cooney on his inside, and not unreasonably, he chose Robert Balakoon on his outside, as I think 99 players out of 100 would probably do in those circumstances. But if he had given it inside to John Cooney, Cooney scores much nearer the post, and he missed the conversion from wide out, whereas he would have got the one from beside the post. Like, the margins are so tiny when you lose by one point, 50-49 over 160 minutes. But, yeah, that's going to be such a difficult... I'd say it's the crudest defeat they've had in a long time, right up there when they threw the kitchen sink at Leinster three seasons ago at the Aviva. But given this was at home and they had the winning of the game, even more so. Yes. I heard an, an inter- uh, Anderson interview this visceral, gut-wrenching uh, disappointment from, from a player of considerable experience now. Um, just in terms of how close and yet again so far. Mm. Um, it was an interesting interview to hear from a captain uh, kind of spill his guts out. He just was, he was so you know, upset and in a re- I mean this in a in a refreshing way. There was yeah. no, there was no. We'll go back to the drawing board and we, you know, we'll regather. There was no cliches about it. He wore his heart in his sleeve. He was absolutely distraught, and this I can understand. Big chance. Time is ticking yeah. for Henderson. Yeah. You must realise, and they, you know, wasted a couple of years at Ulster. Now they're back in a good place. If they had won this game, which they should have, on balance yeah. over the two, they've got a home semi, home, semi- home quarter final against Munster, which they would have fancied. Yeah, yeah. suddenly they're yeah. in a semi final. Yeah. And then things get very interesting for them. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to come to you in this because I've spoken to Jerry about this, I would say, about a thousand times over the last couple of years. We had a red card in this game, high hit. We've seen this uh, movie mm. before several times. Could have been other cards, by the way, that Larry was very lucky for um, uh, tackle in the air, I think, not to get a card of some sort. But that's uh, not so much what we're talking about here. But a, a high hit, a red card, could have been another. Like Steve, Tom- Steve Thompson's uh, autobiography serialised at the weekend and again it's absolutely harrowing reading where it, it, it brings home what we're talking about here uh, in this sport and the damage that can be done and he's he's recounting uh, screaming at the dog and the dog not responding and continuing <coughs> to scream at the dog and looks down to see his confused three-year-old son and then he mm. realises I've been calling the dog by my son's name yeah. or being in the kitchen with his wife and they're talking <coughs> as couples talk in the kitchen yeah. and he knows that she's his wife and he just can't remember her name. Mm. Just and it's utterly horrific. And he is—he's having very dark thoughts about the uh, request, I suppose, he's making of his wife and family over the decades to come. Mm. So it's—it's it's utterly horrific. And the game is trying to change, and mm. I think it should be applauded for the way it's trying to change. We have seen red card after red card after red card. I can't, in any sport, Andy, think of such a lag in behavioural change. Like if we have a new Premier League rule. Uh, handball is being penalised within two or three weeks players have adapted Gaelic games mm-hmm. every league campaign they're now big on the hand pass players start adapting we're now several years into sendings off and we're still seeing players tackle upright shoulders into heads red cards shoulders into heads red cards it leads me to believe that defensive coaches are not coaching correct tackle technique yeah it's an interesting observation about the lag 
Um, then again, some some change is easier than others in terms of. I work in healthcare. There's been a public health campaign to stop smoking for sixty years, and it's still widespread. Some messages are harder to get across than others. Um, the the I always remember the 2011 World Cup when uh, Alan Roland um, red carded. Well, I think it was a Warburton. Yeah. yeah. I would. There was an overnight reaction to that. There was no lag time or adjustment because there's a conscious decision to. Well, you've made the hit, you lift and you tip. There's a very conscious decision to that. Um, there's, n- <sighs> you know, some of these contacts head to head or about body position or about sometimes you see <coughs> someone slightly trip or or hit contact off some other player and go into fall into contact. And there's an accidental element at times to it. There's there's a non. Um, <sighs> it's not obvious or not conscious that players are going in to shoulder to the face. It's a very conscious decision to tip tackle and and tip the head and go beyond the horizontal. And we all became very familiar with that phrase. I think from a behavioural point of view, it was easier to implement that straight away. Yeah, I just think it's a very, very difficult thing to change based on the collision nature of the sport. But I think for what it's worth, it's worth sticking with it. It's worth sticking with controversy. But I also think it's worth sticking on the conservative side and making the red cards continue in order to avoid what you started out your question with is um, players who have to deal with the darkness 10 years later. And I know many, um, some are on record. I played with Michael Lippman in Bath, who's been diagnosed with early dementia. I played against Steve Thompson. Um, and there are a number of Irish players who aren't out on record who have, have grave concerns around their mental health and their cognition. And it's as a result of consistent head collisions in rugby and they don't look back on that favourably. So I think for all the controversy and barroom conversation and radio and TV and media conversation, I think it's worth sticking with if you've come this far, and yes, there's a, there's a lag time, but there are complexities to changing mm-hmm. um, collisions. Yes, and I think it will come over time with consistency and the message eventually will get across. I, d- I actually don't think, I think a lot of defensive coaches are really trying their best to get people lower in the tackle, to get you using your footwork to adapt. But ultimately it is, a, you know, when you carry the ball, you want to win collisions. And sometimes in a split second, there's a collision that happens that is a couple of inches off where it should have been. And yes, you got to just hit it with a red card then, I think, more often than not. OK, well, that's a very nuanced way of addressing it. Jerry. we've talked about it a lot, so for the purposes of time, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll press on. Leinster mm-hmm. double scores on Connacht on aggregate, 82 points to 41, 56-20 on the Friday night. It was interesting. Andy Friend felt, uh, certainly from a physicality point of view, Connacht didn't match Leinster, and that was... Well, one of their primary undoings uh, for the Gibson Park try, where I think is it Baird out in the wing and, and Lowe sets Park away. Uh, I suspect you might have been at the stadium, but uh, on the TV coverage, Sam Warburton just said, oh, my God, this is the All Blacks. This is All yeah. Blacks kind of uh, strike. <clears throat> and uh, they're just too good. They're too good for 90 percent of teams, 99 percent of teams they come up against. Yeah, it's not the first time that uh, Leinster or indeed Ireland have even been compared to the All Blacks this season, I think. 
did Nicky Evans say to Jerry Flannery that you know that Ireland were reminded a little bit of the All Blacks during the Six Nations as well and last November um, they're just too good for a team like Connor right they're, they're, they're too good for a lot of sides there, there is a deficiency in the ball carrying department I think in that kind of team you make you see the difference even when Abram Papali comes on I think it makes quite a difference they are a little bit short of ball carrying whereas Leinster's ball carrying um, strengths have improved considerably this season with the emergence of Dan Sheehan and Ronan Keller coming on another notch I think even with Caelan Doris and Jack Colan coming on another notch, they're just, um, they've got a raft of ball carries. And then you look at Robbie Henshaw, how fresh he is now in the midfield as well. And then the way they use James Lowe, who's an enormous ball carry as well. Connacht just don't have those kind of weapons. And it's just, it's very interesting the way that Leinster are using James Lowe so much in their starter plays. He's involved so heavily involved in not just the four tries he scored, the other tries. And, you know, if all else fails, they get inside your 22, they can just pick and jam, pick and jam, or one-off runners and get over their line that way. They've got so such a variety and such a different way of scoring tries that, yeah, the, the only thing is that, yeah, they come through Connacht and, they, and they're looking very sharp and very fresh and they've got a lot of strings to their bow. Hopefully James Ryan comes back now as well. And, of course, they've got Andrew Porter and Keller back. So they're not far off full strength and all these talents they've got that... The only thing is that their draw is probably as tough as they could have imagined Leicester um, at Welford Road in the quarterfinal. Put it this way, if it was over two legs, you'd be making Leinster firm favourites. The fact that it's now a one-off knockout tie in Leicester yeah. um, with a Bain-Welford Road crowd just makes them what seemed like a narrow pitch to the Aviva. You just think that it's it, that there will be tougher tests ahead. Like, And you think of Saracens and La Rochelle. It's coming up against the big packs like Leicester that you know will be the ultimate test for Leinster if they're going to get over the line and Get back, get that fifth star on their chest. Yes, and should Toulouse beat Munster, for instance? So if Munster wins at the Aviva, presumably would it be yeah. in Toulouse? No, if Leinster and Toulouse both won, Leinster would be at home the semi. So either way, it looks like Leinster going to be playing a semi final in the Aviva. Aviva. Okay, okay, uh, Andy, that's the. That's they get through. <laughs> yes, well, listen, that's a big assumption. Jerry mentioned, you know, Welford Road, Leicester mm. Pack. I'm not as okay with the Leinster Pack. The Leicester Pack, I should say, as um, well. La Rochelle last year and Saracens previously and Will Skelton I'm sure is on yes, uh, yes on several yeah. minds um, there is a reason Leinster are bringing in a Jason Jenkins for instance next mm. season and, and mm. so James Ryan is, is back and fit again uh, second row so that you know uh, they effectively have the Irish front row and mm. the, the back row has got a lot going on why how worried we should, should uh, Leinster be for instance over deficiencies in power in the second row why is that so pivotal <sighs> Or I'd, is it? I know. I think they have a way to circumnavigate that. Currently, the way they're playing, um, as, as opposed to previous years. Yes, I just think they are. Their execution is a little better uh, in terms of phase play. I think they've identified um, a number of other ball carriers. Um, Jerry mentioned Doris. Jerry mentioned Jack Conan. Three seasons ago, Josh van der Fleur. He was not considered a ball carrier. He's become unbelievably dynamic and effective as a ball carrier. He's almost an unsung hero of a ball carrier. Every time he carries, he's doing damage and he's accelerating into contact and he's being explosive. I think I think what they identified as a coaching team is if we can't, you know, airdrop the perfect solution into the second row, some others are going to have to step up to the plate and develop their ability to carry the ball. And you wouldn't look at van der Fleer and say, He's a he's a Will Skelton by any shadow, um, nor will he be destructive against a Will Skelton. But he's an additional ball carrier who can accelerate into space, who can attract um, two defenders by doing that. 
and can free up space elsewhere. And what they do really well now is that once they get any sense of a chink in the defensive armour, the resultant execution of phase play is of such a high standard. Um, Warburton alluded to the All Blacks. It always reminds me of a, a Wayne Smith quote who's considered you know, central to their two World Cups in, in 11 and 15, is you never get tired of doing the simple things well. Mm. And I just think they've dialed that up again. Okay. I think Lancaster is very, very hot on that in terms of high-level intensity training sessions, execution of skills under pressure. And I think they're trying to circumnavigate their way around the, the lack of timber that they they have in the second row right now as a solution so I, I think they're doing a really good job at it actually they are in South Africa they have the Sharks in Durban and then they have the Stormers and there are the Welford Road soldiers I think preparing in Dublin that's where Leinster are they're first in the URC they have a home quarter and home semi-final as for Connacht Jerry, just a word on how their season plays out now uh, they have the Lions in Johannesburg and then they have the Sharks. Andy Friend said an interesting thing. I was reading the quote in your uh, paper. He said, there are players that we know are moving on and we haven't brought them to South Africa. Mm. Uh, we're yeah. still very much in the season, but we want to invest in the people who are going to be here next year, which was kind of an, an interesting approach. They're 10th in the URC. So I was reading really, they need the guts of three bonus point wins if they want to have any real hope of making the playoffs and having Champions Cup rugby next season. That seems like a, a tall order in the extreme here for Connacht. I, I think you're absolutely right, Joe. Not only are they 10th in the URC, aren't they about 10 points behind the top eight as well, I think? Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. a good gap behind. I think, I think that ship has sailed as well for them. I think that's possibly why Andy Friend can take this attitude not to bring the Bree Brown duo of... Uh, Abraham Papali and Sammy Arnold because if they were just two or three points off the top eight I'd venture they both might be there because then you might as well throw everything at it but in a sense he knows that ship has probably sailed and also the South African side they're just on a roll aren't they now at home they're back more to near full strength and you know they were all written off a little bit too easily early too prematurely early on in the season when they you know they didn't adapt the away games or missing their Springboks frontliners home conditions with their Springbok frontliners back in they're on a long sequence of winning runs now, a lot of them at home. They could well have three, if not four, in the playoffs, possibly even a home quarter finalist in the playoffs. So it would actually, whatever kind of get, I think is a building block towards next season for sure. And it would be actually nice to see Leinster win a game or two over there just to, you know, so to, to stop their, the South African momentum because suddenly they look a little bit ominous. Mm. Well, Jerry, do I see headlines uh, play the final in South Africa this week? Yes, 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 yes. This has been mooted. Yes. Which would seem, um, yeah, you. I would have, yeah, I would have hoped and thought that whoever was top seed, which is obviously good chances of going to be Leinster, they wouldn't be rewarded by having to be sent down to South Africa for a final. And the logic being to further ingratiate the tournament with the South African public. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. But either way, Joe, isn't it absolutely abundantly clear? If this is how well they've done in their first season, the likelihood is mm. South African sides are only get going to get stronger, which is going to make it more and more difficult for the Irish sides to a win the URC and b qualify the playoffs and C, qualify for the Heineken Champions Cup. I think it's a good thing that the URC is becoming more competitive. That's uh, yeah. probably one of the biggest issues about it as a as a draw for the for the viewer in yeah. the last couple of seasons. So many dud fixtures. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a positive. Just before we go, England-Ireland, 12 o'clock Sunday in the TikTok Women's Six Nations. The Irish Sevens players are gone. They have a World Seven Series uh, event at the end of the month in Canada. So from the Italian win, 
numbers 11 to 15 included all of those players gone overnight plus Brittany Hogan and Anna McGann they've also gone the way of sevens and just to compound matters Sam Monaghan in the second row who had been one of Ireland's best players is out injured yeah so England in their last three games uh, 31 tries 189 points in effect since England handed out 28 full-time professional contracts in 2019 they have not lost a game they are the best team in this competition they are the best team quite probably in the world odds on to win the World Cup uh, it's at Welford Road so Andy what do you do I mean give us an insight into you're in a team uh, this team Irish team will have never played together before given the sevens turnover it's a difficult thing where losing by 40 maybe even 50 or less is a good day at the office this is you know it's a strange mindset to get yourself into yeah I it's a real difficulty for um, Greg Mike Williams and the coaching team to to lose that many key players to the sevens it's um, I think the big challenge is that they haven't yet identified um backup that's strong enough I think one of Greg's biggest um, ideologies coming into the job was that he needed to develop strength and depth and he sent out a an email to all all Ireland league players in December with the requirements that he needed for them to be in the squad and one of his biggest ones was was fitness levels and the ability to play um with the ball keep the ball in play for longer periods multiple phases and i think he'd identified it down to the minute now the average women's international game was keeping the ball in play for 36 minutes and they wanted to train to build it up to 37 38 minutes in training and he's trying to find people that yeah. fit that first Which, by the way they've managed yeah yeah hasn't really made any great impact it, on it hasn't yet it hasn't and it's been it's been pretty pretty tricky for them i think the the second or third choices probably aren't quite up to the strength and depth that the, yeah. the English have as a result of 28 professional contracts and, and further back up there and a greater amount of numbers across the UK so it's going to be a really really difficult day for them I'd imagine based on, on the loss of key players to the sevens and the injury Yeah, not not sure how you frame it Jerry. final word to you on it Well it was an uneven playing field to begin with and now it's just got even more uneven like England have been professional for two years they can they are they are the best team in the world it's all part of a master plan to win the World Cup and um, there's every chance they will do that and uh, you know they can it's not really the IRFU's fault or it's certainly not Greg McWilliams fault that the Sevens first leg is clashing with the last round of Six Nations so the Sevens players are now way preparing for that I can understand the RFU's thinking in those players being made available for that competition totally but um, you know Ireland can't take that kind of drain the way England and France can so this clash um, suits the it suits the stronger squad that suits England and France Okay well we'll see what happens Sunday afternoon Sunday lunchtime our rugby gorging off the ball with thanks to Vodafone main sponsor of the Irish rugby team we all belong to the team of us Andy Dunn thank you for coming into the studio No problem Jerry. and Jerry Thornley of the Irish Times Cheers Jerry Cheers, Joe. Thank you. Cheers, Andy. Cheers, Jerry. Wednesday Night Rugby on Off The Ball. With Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us.